listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 136. The labor movement has been living in the shadow of a national assault on public sector collective bargaining for a while now. We've talked a lot about Harris versus Quinn, how labor dodged a bullet with that case and dodged another one with the death of Justice Antonin Scalia before the Friedrichs case could be decided. But Janus versus American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees Council 31 is likely to be the case that labor has been dreading and we break it down for you today. First though, the news. Last year, on Belabored Episode 105, we spoke with Jonah Birch about the uprising in France over attempts to reform the country's labor law. Well, after an election, the country's centrist president, Emmanuel Macron, hero to liberals everywhere for defeating white nationalist Marine Le Pen and her Front National, is trying to do the same thing, and workers are not pleased. The short version of the story is that austerity and attempts at labor law reform basically destroyed the Socialist Party in France. Its vote collapse was spectacular in the last election. Yet Macron, a former investment banker and also the minister of the economy and finance in that very same Socialist Party government that saw its popularity plummet to single digits, managed to somehow position himself as an independent, an outsider, and won the presidency. Two plaudits from people around the world looking for a solution to the problem of the rise of the far right. But in office, Macron has been anything but a solution. His approval ratings rival Trump's after an even shorter period of time in office, and his friend of the podcast Cole Stangler wrote in a recent story, amid all the equivocations shaping his career, French President Emmanuel Macron has remained singularly committed to the cause of remaking labor law, to favor employers. The labor law changes weaken collective bargaining rights and make it easier to fire workers, and they have stirred up protest, enough so that Macron lost his temper and told workers to, quote, stop wreaking effing havoc. Meanwhile, Macron has also scrapped France's wealth tax, perhaps another reason why the workers continue to wreak havoc. This fall has been roiled by strikes and protests, and Macron's latest pronouncement from on high is unlikely to stop them, and even less likely to win the working class away from either his leftist opponent, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, or the false populism of Marine Le Pen and the Front National. Instead of being a bulwark against instability, it turns out that Macron and the neoliberalism that he champions are a beacon for more of it. Uber has hit yet another speed bump on its drive to dominate city streets around the globe. The infamous ride-sharing service has been temporarily banned by Transport for London, the city's main regulatory body for old-world black cabs, as well as the newfangled tech-driven ride-hailing apps. Uber has vowed to keep fighting the ban. In the meantime, organizers will continue to pressure regulators to check Uber's expansion so that wages and working standards are preserved for all drivers. As in the U.S., London cabbies tend to work on their own and are traditionally difficult to organize, but the rise of Uber has prompted a new street-level campaign to break the monopoly power of big tech. Transport for London has said that Uber failed to comply with regulations on public safety and security protections. That's just part of the story. The politics surrounding Uber go far beyond safety concerns because the firm is seen as an anti-regulatory, anti-tax, so-called market disruptor that's undercutting the earnings of traditional cabbies and exploiting consumers at the same time through market manipulation. That creates an unsafe atmosphere, but it's also one of economic insecurity. The ban, which is a suspension of the license to operate in the city, is in limbo as Uber exhausts the appeals process. Uber says they want to negotiate with the city on improving its business practices, but the political debate over how to regulate Uber and similar cab services will likely continue in London and beyond as more cities around the world act to ban Uber. Here in New York, as we've reported before, we haven't banned Uber, but Uber is battling against our own yellow cab drivers while incurring the wrath of local regulators as well as those who drive for Uber who are tired of erratic schedules and unfair costs and penalties that come with being a member of the service. Meanwhile, in London, an online petition in support of Uber has been launched, putting both cabbies and Uber CEOs in an awkward standoff. Uber reportedly has about 3.5 million passengers in London alone, and the company's numerous internal scandals at the CEO level have shown that ride-sharing presents just one small facet of a regulation-free market economy that Silicon Valley has been spreading across the world. For Londoners who are torn between the convenience of Uber and the issue of economic justice for drivers, we'll need to think about 
who the so-called sharing economy serves in a world where social opportunity is increasingly scarce and corporate greed is crowding out the common good. Our colleagues across the country at the Los Angeles Times, one of the few big newspapers in the country to not already have a labor union, are organizing and their bosses don't like it. I know that that will just leave our listeners shocked, shocked to hear that bosses don't like union drives. The LA Times is owned by Tronc, T-R-O-N-C, formerly Tribune Company, and in recent months, popular editors had been fired, other layoffs instituted, vacation policy effectively eliminated, and that has led staffers at the paper to consider unionizing. They are working with the News Guild, which represents 25,000 journalists across the country, including those at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. A letter from the organizing committee at the LA Times reads, in part, quote, After 135 years of service, the journalists of the Los Angeles Times are forming a union. A majority of the newsroom has already signed cards supporting representation by the News Guild, and we look forward to gathering more signatures in the weeks ahead. Our supporters are award-winning journalists across every department who have dedicated and at times risked their lives to serve our readers and to better inform our city, state, and country. Unfortunately, producing this kind of journalism has gotten harder. Yearly raises have become a thing of the past. Talented journalists who want to build careers here have left for better pay and opportunities at other news outlets. We have few job protections at a time of high uncertainty in our industry, and our benefits cost far more than they used to, end quote. The anti-union effort, of course, is on in one somewhat hilarious case, including flyers in which the management forgot to replace the generic union language in the obviously pre-prepared text, threatening that employees' benefits and wages could actually go down if they vote for a union. Captive audience meetings have also begun, but the workers plan to persevere and we plan to keep you posted. In the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico is still hurting, and huge swaths of the island are virtually cut off from any aid resources. The federal recovery response has been tragically inadequate, despite Trump's valiant paper roll tossing during his recent photo op stop there. Union workers, however, have stepped in to fill the breach, delivering critical relief, raising funds on the mainland, and flying workers down there to provide health services, rebuilding aid, and transportation support to impacted communities. Nurses, construction workers, Teamster volunteer truck drivers, and others are trying to fill the logistical gaps where FEMA has utterly failed. Many of the workers have personal ties to the island. Now, Trump has insidiously tried to blame local workers for being supposedly too slow to respond, but workers here in the U.S. mainland and on the island itself are clearly doing more than smiling for the camera. At a fundraising gathering, one TWU union delegate declared, this is what being an American looks like. And union emergency responders carried that message to the besieged island's workers to show that whatever Trump says about disaster relief going great, workers have put their solidarity to work on the ground. As we've reported before, the island suffered an economic crisis long before it was hit with an environmental one, and the island's workers must now rebuild it from scratch under an administration deeply tied to Wall Street interests. Some are hoping the storm will bring new opportunities for a labor-focused, community-based economic autonomy, such as green energy development for the entire island so they can rid it of fossil fuel dependency. But that challenge is daunting. First challenge is to reclaim the island itself from its corporate colonial masters. I talked to Rutgers University professor Yorimar Bania about what she's been hearing about what's going on on the island and how working class people are taking the hit. Well, one of the issues is with all the money that's going to flow in, because money will flow in um, for disaster relief, to make sure that, that those are not used to further, uh, you know, the monopoly that corporations like Walmart and Home Depot have in the economy. It would be great if some of that money was earmarked for local businesses and that some of the employment that will be generated by FEMA, that it's not just workers that are brought you know, from the United States, but that people who have been put out of work, um, you know, the downsizing that has been uh, going on in Puerto Rico in the government, et cetera, that those people are the, the, the beneficiaries of these targeted investments. Um, and so, you know, there was also before this happened, there had been all this legislation to cut um, the employment, the 
the wage, the minimum wage in Puerto Rico. And so, you know, I, I mean, I am actually worried, or, or not worried, but just unsure about how this is going to get reconciled because most of these FEMA jobs will be very good paying jobs, you know? Um, so there's people who, if you look at like the, after the oil spill in Alaska, people after after my article came out, people have written to me um, telling me about how, yeah, there was all this money that flowed in and that people were like, oh yeah, well, let, let's spill again, you know? Because to a certain extent, these disasters provide people with economic opportunities that are not otherwise there, you know? So so there will be, in, in a context where they were talking about reducing the minimum wage to just a couple of bucks an hour, suddenly um, these FEMA jobs will be $11, $12, $13 an hour. That's going to be huge in Puerto Rico. And so who is going to get those jobs? It will, it will probably be people with political connections, you know, or people brought from the outside. First of all, the oversight board, like one of the first things it imposed was furloughs for all government workers, even though the oversight board members themselves make astronomical, inexplicable salaries, um, like three times more than what they made their comparable people in Detroit, etc. There's that, but then also the local government had issued an initiative, La Reforma Laboral. The, the labor reform, um, which allowed employers to hire young workers for, I think it was three or four dollars an hour, really a, a just insanely small amount of money, as a measure to supposedly build jobs and, and, and create jobs and get the economy going. But all the economists said that that was the absolute worst thing they could possibly do and that it would only help to stagnate the economy. That was Yari Marbonia of Rutgers University. One of the few promises Trump did deliver on from the campaign trail is to install a fierce right-wing majority on the Supreme Court. Now, that court is prepared to hear one of its biggest labor cases. It's called Janus, and it threatens to undermine the financial and uh, political core of many public sector unions across the country. To understand what's at stake here, we're talking to Andrew Stetner. He is a fellow at the Century Foundation, and he has been closely following what the Supreme Court is doing and uh, how Democrats and labor unions are now bracing themselves for rude awakening after biting the bullet last year with the untimely death of Justice Antonin Scalia. We're now waking up from that uh, awkward bout of good fortune, and it promises to be a very full frontal assault on public sector unions. So explain what's at stake with this round of litigation and what it means in the context of previous litigation that has revolved around the same issues of constitutional rights and union rights. So thanks again, Michelle, for having me on the podcast and having a chance to talk with your listeners about the this you know kind of critical issue. I think unions are this is like the Friedrich case you mentioned. This is an existential uh, threat. Uh, to public sector unions. At issue in the case is the right of unions to collect mandatory uh, agency fees or dues from everyone in the bargaining unit. It's kind of a bedrock idea of unionism in America that if you know the workers democratically elect uh, to have a union, then that union is the singular voice uh, of all the workers for um, negotiating uh, with uh, the employer around the critical issues, what we might call the terms and conditions of employment. Um, workers have challenged this uh, effect, and have brought this case uh, on the argument that they are being forced to make political speech. Um, you know, let, let's be clear that uh, anyone within a bargaining unit in a government agency can um, decide not to contribute to the PAC. Um, that's a separate donation. But they're they arguing by the very means of having a public sector union, uh, they are being forced uh, to agree, for example, for more uh, public funding for public schools, um, in the case of public school teachers. So they are bringing kind of a First Amendment 
uh, challenge to this uh, kind of fundamental uh, bedrock provision of unionism. Um, it to be you know to be to short, it's the equivalent uh, of uh, right to work uh, for the public sector. Um, and what it would mean is that unions, you know, are obliged to represent all of the workers when it comes to bargaining, not only for a contract, but uh, grievances that they, they have. Workers all over the country that are um, in union shops uh, would be able to get something for free. They wouldn't have to pay uh, the dues uh, for being part uh, of the union. Um, and where we're at with this, it was kind of a brief reprieve after a very similar case, um, the Friedrichs case, which is a California teacher. This is an Illinois government employee that has brought this case. It was almost like a mirage. Um, we thought that this kind of deadly blow would be inflicted on public unions uh, more, than, um, more than a year ago when uh, Justice Scalia passed away. Suddenly, uh, that case was deadlocked four to four, uh, but essentially the same case and same argument is now uh, coming back before the court. Right. So um, just to be clear, that the constitutional issue here is not that people are being forced to become union members per se. It's simply about the collection of agency fees that would finance sort of the day-to-day mechanics of organizing and collective bargaining. Right. So at, as it is right now, anyone in a private or public sector union can decide that they don't want to join the union. Uh, any of you who have worked in a unionized shop Probably remember when you first your first day of work, you're you're given a form to check off whether you want to be part of the union or whether you want to pay agency fees. Um, and the, the idea behind that is, you can say, I don't I, I don't want to be a part of the union. I don't want to be. I don't believe in that. But they're still providing me a service, so there's going to be a fee taken out of my paycheck, uh, you know, to uh, to pay for that. So it, it is it will basically be um, uprooting those fees. Um, but that, as you can understand. Um, this what you might call a free rider problem. Once it's not required for you to pay those uh, dues or fees, people can say, well, maybe I just don't need to pay it. The union still has to represent me. Um, so it could really kind of be a, a very negative spiral for unions that rely on dues and fees. You said that workers are technically sort of filing this suit, but it, it's not really exactly a grassroots challenge on behalf of constitutional rights of the little guy here, right? I mean, there are some serious right-wing forces that have been militating um, for what we call right to work um, across both the public and private sector. Can you describe the political forces behind this as well as what the administration in Illinois had when they essentially became an active participant in this litigation? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think it's very accurate to say that as a as a rule, conservative act- activists and their political allies um, act to um, debilitate unions with much more vigor than liberal advocates and their political allies do to defend them. Um, so there's been a concerted effort for many years, um, led by conservative uh, mega donors like the like the Bradley Foundation uh, and certainly the the Koch brothers um, to have this kind of litigation. Um, organizations like the National Right to Work Foundation, which is representing uh, Mr. Janus and is, is behind this case, or the Center for uh, Individual Rights, another kind of uh, legal organization, have steadily you know, brought these cases over a number of years and have pushed for right to work legislation, which now exists uh, in uh, 27 uh, states, I should say, so-called uh, you know, right to work um, uh, legislation. Um, so this has really been a pretty major uh, conservative push. And in Illinois, you know, there's been this very um, uh, concerted uh, anti-union effort in the upper in the mid in the in the upper Midwest um, over the last you know number of, of years, going from what was a you know traditionally a pro-union uh, you know um, part of the country um, to have a number of the states have right-to-work legislation. And so um, Bruce Rauner, the Republican governor, certainly comes from the business community in a very conservative bet, tried to push through a right to work, you know, le- legislation like his uh, allies, but he didn't have the legislative support to do it. So he kind of, you know, ended up backing, uh, you know, this uh, case um, and, uh, you know, actively supporting, um, you know, this effort 
um, you know, um, to undermine. Uh, remember what we're talking about is public sector bargaining. That's what this case is all about. It's about government uh, employees and the number of states that currently uh, allow for um, uh, dues or agency fees um, to be withdrawn on a mandatory basis. Now, the National Labor Relations Act doesn't cover public employees, so this is really been a state by state, you know, piece. But some, but basically, they're challenging, uh, you know, uh, this state law and you know all all these state laws that allow for public sector bargaining. Right, and because there's no definitive uh, federal body that that um, oversees these these rights, there's huge variance. I, I understand in, in terms of what different public sector unions are allowed to do in states, and so it's it's still it's working off an uneven landscape and also providing a lot of openings for um, right wing attacks. And you know we see right to work proliferating across the South, for instance. Yeah, so right to work, you know, in terms of so right to work, which is private sector unions, um, is now up to 27 states, uh, and it's basically entire the entire South uh, is now right to work, and then most of the mid now most of the Midwest and the Rocky Mountain region are also right to work, and some of the recent right to work laws came in Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and they were effective. Uh, they reduced unionization rates, uh, just the presence of that law uh, by by two percentage points and brought down wages by almost three percent. You know, just I think Wisconsin was probably the most uh, dramatic uh, change um, before the law was passed, um, which was not just uh, these kind of attacks on public sector bargaining, um, which were um, there, you know, much more that would be done just through Janus was not just taking away the ability to collect dues, but also limited the scope of what unions could bar, bar, bargain around. Um, like you said, you know, states can be much more restrictive because there's no controlling uh, federal labor law over states. The number of workers in public sector unions in Wisconsin dropped from 50% to 26% uh, after that law was passed. So um, you do have um, you know, a lot of variation in the states. And the key thing here, though, was there's been this precedent since 1977 um, in a decision called Abood, uh, where um, the 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 right of states to say, um, and this is the basis of all current federal labor law, we want to have a smoothly running work workplace that is, you know, where there's one set of standards, you know, for everybody is treated. There's one set of grievance procedures. There's not some people in union and some people not. Um, so we want that to have one standard for that, and to have that, the union has to be supported by its workers. That right has been in place for states since 1977, and there was um, some hope before the Friedrichs case that some of the conservative members of the court, um, John Roberts, even Antonin Scalia, um, would you know, bow to that precedent. Um, which is, you know, just really linked to the fundamental, uh, you know, idea of labor law, you know, not requiring the states to allow unions, but giving them the option to allow bargaining. Um, there was some thought that they might, you know, bend to that abode precedent. Um, but in the oral arguments um, for Friedrichs, it was very disappointing. You know, it was clear that Scalia would have voted against it based on his comments, and Roberts also seemed. Uh, as well as Kennedy, you know, neither of them seemed at the time that they were persuaded, you know, by that argument. Um, so it, it's a, it is a very grim, you know, pathway uh, into the Supreme Court and, and what we would hope to uh, to get out of it. Uh, one uh, colleague of mine, you know, called it, it will take, you know, uh, miraculous or magical thinking uh, to think, um, you know, that uh, we can convince this court to, to vote. Uh, in, in a different way. Um, you know, it doesn't mean we should, you know, there, there needs to be real efforts and exposure of what this would mean to workers and to inequality. Um, but, you know, there's there's just kind of, um, you know, negative things in the air based on the previous run of, of this case and some earlier decisions um, like that it kind of indicated where the Supreme Court, um, you know, would come out. Right. Um, you noted that unions kind of bit the bullet with um, Scalia's uh, untimely death. And, 
right now, I mean, the, the, the main factor that I guess you could say is changed in the Supreme Court is that we have a full court um, and we have Gorsuch. Is it just widely assumed that he will rule against the unions on this? I think people are very, con- very concerned with how he will rule. Um, you know, he's generally been, um, you know, very pro-business in his prior, uh, you know, decisions. Um, there was a, a case where a truck driver was fired for leaving his vehicle when he was in freezing conditions, but that violated his con- his contract when he left his vehicle, and he upheld that that was a, a just termination. You know, and he's was certainly someone that was been fed it and just this weekend, you know, or last week, I believe, spoke at the Trump International Hotel at the at the conference of one of the organizations um, that was, you know, behind this suit. Um, so there's a lot of concern about where Gorsuch uh, will end up on this case. Can you explain what the concrete impact might be on unions per se? I mean, what exactly are they afraid of? You, you know, of course, there will be an erosion of finances, but there was you know, prior to the 70s, I mean, there was a pre-Abood organizing landscape. What is the fear of returning to that? Can you explain what it was like before? When you're basis of the unions and, and you have this agency shop that you've won a number of years ago, um, you certainly have leaders, but the process of collecting dues and building your organization, you know, becomes more automatic. Um, unions have worked, you know, incredibly hard um, since the danger of Friedrichs to collect, you know, names of of a leader at every, um, you know, shop, um, they're going to have to organize, um, you know, for dues collection. Before dues collection was an automatic, you know, type of piece. Now they're going to have to organize for it. Um, and, you know, and, and I have seen some of you say that, you know, probably a third of, you know, their public sector members are 100% in and, um, you know, um, but probably about 50% of them, half of them are probably on the fence about whether they'll pay, pay dues. Um, and so, you know, that's, there's going to be a huge amount of energy that's going to have to be put in, uh, you know, by unions. And they're going to face those same right-wing organizations that are bankrolling these cases have been trying to convince um, union members that have the option to pay dues to not pay dues. One of the suits that this is based on was a decision called Harris versus Quinn. Um, there's this very effective strategy uh, a number of years ago. Uh, I guess probably in the early 2000s, where in progressive states, unions got laws passed to say that home health care workers would be considered state employees for the purposes of some critical benefits and for the purposes of collective bargaining. So although they're in a, you know, maybe even be self-employed or in a million different agencies, shops, they'd be considered state employees. That was challenged. And so then workers had the voluntarily could choose whether it be unions, uh, unions or not, in some of these states like Oregon. And then the Koch brothers bankrolled campaigns, very slick marketing campaigns, direct mail campaigns to home care workers to sell them, you know, to you know, keep your own money. Don't pay it to the union. So they're gonna face, you know, opposition, you know, within within their within their states. And you know, obviously the Century Foundation is a nonpartisan organization, but it's important to understand the, the political implications of this. In the, la- in the last election I mentioned, Wisconsin, you know, before the decline in union density uh, in, uh, in swing states is a critical feature to the outcome of presidential elections uh, and statewide elections. So those folks who have a conservative bent, they want to do everything they possibly can uh, to undermine union membership. So they're going to face um, kind of sustained political opposition to their very basic uh, uh, existence. So the unionization, you know, if you think about as, you know, there's certainly no silver lining in this, um, but what it does compel unions to do, like you said, this pre-Abood regime, is to have a much more activist uh, bent uh, to really showing their value uh, to their members, uh, to be rallying very actively uh, for um, the policy changes um, they need to have more alliance with uh, non-union organizations, that citizen groups that share the same desire for good quality public services. Um, this is some things you know you see in uh, some of the states that have smaller union movements is you know more coalition building um, versus having their own political muscle to muscle things themselves. And so those are the you know those are the things that their unions are going to have to you know uh, return to um, you know in order to to move forward. Um, and 
it will hopefully also open up um, a broader set of legal strategies, um, you know, to restrictions on uh, unions' ability to use uh, tactics that many other advocates can use, um, free speech tactics like boycotts, um, frees them up, you know, if this, you know, um, as the fund, as the current labor laws regime is weakened, will frees them up to, to make uh, legal challenges to um, those restrictions, um, kind of all bets are off when it comes to, you know, how the courts have looked at labor law in the past. Right. I mean, of course, the the irony here is that they're framing it around this issue of supposed free speech rights, when in fact what these essentially do is sort of silence workers um, through this economic war of attrition. But you're going back to what you were saying. In the face of that, there are new organizing strategies coming out. And one of the things seen as a unique feature of Queen was that it related to a home care workforce that was very dispersed and sort of intrinsically difficult to organize on an industry-wide basis. And so perhaps there's a case to be made that, um, you know, in order to sort of retool themselves to adapt to the needs of a 21st century workforce, this does speak to a, a need for a, an organizing strategy that is much more broad-based and maybe no longer um, reliant on sort of default uh, financial support. Yeah, I mean, I think you know some of the most creative public sector unions have been the ones in North Carolina where they don't have uh, the right to be part of a union. They've you know they've turned to international human rights uh, tribunals um, to uh, protest. You know how the U.S. is out of compliance uh, with international treaties that we've agreed to, and they've gotten public attention and public pressure. Um, you know, uh, using that strategy. The challenge is, you know, how do you, you know, leveraging that and winning that into, um, you know, uh, you know, wage increases is, is is more challenging. You know, because you're you don't have the same kind of leverage. But certainly, I've seen with the worker center movement, um, very uh, impressive. Uh, gains have been made for domestic workers, uh, restaurant workers, uh, farm workers, um, um, you know, through new tactics. Uh, and part of, you know, what we have a piece out called the Labor Bill of Rights, kind of ask unions to uh, experiment with some of those uh, tactics. Now, there will be legal challenges to some of the tactics that those worker centers have used. Um, but, you know, we think there may be an opportune time to to do things that may be considered currently illegal because the Supreme Court has just put free speech over every other possible right that unions have uh, to regulate commerce. Uh, you know, for example, it may be the right time to to push, you know, beyond some of those boundaries uh, and, and bring some of those cases to the courts, um, you know, under fundamental uh, under fundamental rights or or experiment with new structures where, you know, unions are you know bankrolling, you know, worker centers or other you know non-union movements and certainly you've seen that in the fight for 15 you know where you know kind of new kind of really new strategies uh, for unions to use the resources you know that they, that they have uh, available um so i think there's you know the, those are really hopeful the 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 bigger the bigger challenge and this is why i think everybody absolutely everyone who has any interest in progressive social change in america needs to be concerned the biggest challenge is the political challenge there is no other uh apparatus within the progressive infrastructure that is able to communicate progressive values to working class people in the same way that public sector unions uh, have been able to do. As someone that's been done state policy for many years, the teachers union is the bulwark of uh, democracy, uh, upholding uh, fundamental constitutional rights like the separation of church and state uh, in in states. Um, the Public sector unions are the critical force for maintaining public funding uh, for services. There's no, and that's because they have the ability uh, and the democratic structure to get involved all the way down to the local level. Um, you know, in in electoral politics, there's there's no uh, easy replacement for that, especially when it comes to reaching working class voters uh, within the progressive apparatus. And we've seen. Uh, the danger, you know, to that, and it's, it's brought us, you know, Donald Trump, um, you know, the erosion of working class support as union density has gone down already, uh, and it could only get, you know, much worse. And so, you know, um, progressive thinkers are going to really like to think about, and there's some obviously great things going on in this area, you know, ways to replace that, uh, you know, infrastructure, um, you know, that that in some ways is even the bigger uh, risk of the 
uh, of the Janus case. Right. Um, and it, of course, it should be noted that uh, you know the, this litigation is coming out of Illinois, uh, where the Chicago Teachers Union has been among the most militant unions in the country uh, in terms of advocacy efforts and sort of really concrete grassroots organizing. Free Jokes is out of California, which has a very active teachers union. So, um, you know, we're we're looking at very sort of specific kind of targeting here of the public sector. Yeah, and public sector unions are strongest in those progressive, you know, states. You know, so I think that it is a real very specific, you know, type of targeting for sure. And so, you know, going forward, Trump hasn't said a whole lot about public sector unionization. He has, you know, tried at various points to kind of give lip service to working class voters in the private sector. How might this pending review affect private sector organizing, if at all, and, and what does that say about the Trump administration's overall attitude and what, what we can expect from things like the National Labor Relations Board? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Trump hasn't had had to go out of his way to be anti-union. Uh, he's been able to, you know, but he's appointed very, um, you know, pretty conservative, um, you know, n- nominees for the Labor Relations Board and they had the ability to kind of uh, undermine um you know, cases. Um, and that, that's just kind of following the um, kind of more lockstep um, anti-union stance uh, among, unfortunately, among most Republicans. Certainly when I got involved, not all Republicans were anti-union. Um, it's become much more um, uh, politicized, you know, much more universal. And so I think Trump just kind of holds up that, you know, part of the, the bargain. Um, what happens to national, you know, right to, you know, private sector union rights, it really kind of, people have different opinions. Um, the Center for Individual Rights has a similar, um, uh, was putting some similar cases when Friedrich was going to, uh, through the courts, that would have a similar free speech-based challenge uh, to um, the, the right of private sector unions. A lot of people think that that would be a much more difficult um challenge because in in that case um it's not really about the government what government is doing government compelling speech it's about uh an arrangement that you know private sector businesses and uh, unions have come through in a contract um and so it's we we could have bigger implications on um what uh the courts view as you know its ability to uh regulate uh what corporations and their employees private corporations and private employees can agree to but others think that, you know, there, yeah, it could be, you know, it, it could, you know, lead the way. Probably the bigger, you know, damage, uh, the, big, the bigger danger for a national right to work law, you know, would come in Congress. Um, you know, I think we're still at a place that, you know, wouldn't, there wouldn't be 60 votes in the Senate for a national right to work law. And it's not been something that's been made a priority, you know, by the president. There's only been a lot of meetings and some coverage of, you know, their potential support for a for a national uh, right to work law, um, so I think the bigger, the big, the biggest danger I would say is in the courts and the board, um, you know, to to undermine, really to undermine some of the, you know, progress um, that happened under Obama um, and having the the act cover, you know, more different types of workers like graduate student employees being able to um, um, organize in you know different bargain types of bargaining units within large employers or hold. Um, franchisers accountable for the the treatment of um uh of their subcontractors that there's a danger we'll, we'll probably say more in the courts uh, and more to the lrb what things would erode versus what the trump administration itself will do or congress will do yeah and of course um this sort of brings it back to the fight state by state i suppose i mean right to work hasn't been universally applied yet and so it really seems like a lot of these rights and and protections are sort of hanging by a thread um based on which administration is in power in which state yeah and i think you know probably the you know best heartening example was you know the effort in ohio to fight back uh against um you know, Governor Casey's when he first came in, tried to do something similar to what um, happened in Wisconsin. There was a successful kind of uprising uh, against uh, those efforts. Uh, I do feel like we're kind of getting, you know, when you think about, when you look at the landscape, you, you are kind of compressing probably the, 
the targets uh, for right to work state legislation. And you kind of, you know, unfortunately, this, you know, pretty much all the, you know, red states and many of the purple states now have right to work laws, and it, it's becoming the this the stronger bluer states that, um, you know, you know, still have them, and where will probably be uh, hard to overturn. But there are certainly additional targets, like New Hampshire uh, has been, you know, debating a, a right to work law in a similar Wisconsin, you know, piece. So there certainly are additional, um, you know, targets. But when it comes to, you know, a lot of these things in the state to state level for private workers, you know, we, we've already lost a lot of ground, um, you know, there. Yeah. Are there any other big court cases or uh, rulings that people should look out for? You mentioned graduate employees before the NLRB right now. Um, anything else related to public sector unionism that kind of fits within this context of this um, kind of stealth war against unions <laughs> under the Trump administration? Yeah, I, mean, I think the other kind of key case I'm watching is this case that's currently being debated around uh, arbitration uh, rights and the, and the legality of uh, arbitration to take away the rights of workers to have any type of uh, class action uh, suit. Um, I think those are, you know, one. And then in terms of labor law, um, a number of the kind of key, very key decisions, um, one called Browning-Ferris that was really kind of pushed out this idea that uh, labor law and not just the union law, but the right to concerted activity really extended beyond, uh, you know, could be extended not just, you know, to a main firm, but to all its uh, contractors, um, this is a very important decision um, that could have you know make it much easier for um, places to organize. These places like McDonald's, um, you know that that, that is probably in, in grave danger of being overturned. So those are a couple of the ones that I'm certainly watching. Right, and of course that's no coincidence either, given the organizing landscape around the fight for 15 and how it's sort of begun with fast food workers and has expanded across um, many sectors of the private workforce. Yeah, and I think that's probably the, I would say like the, the what needs to happen now is the, you know, continued experimentation, you know, with, with new models of organizing, uh, particularly in those blue states, I think you mentioned states before, you know, we need to have other, you know, models of organizing, people propose organizing based around the provision of, of portable benefits, the way that uh, actors, um, you know, get benefits by being in the union, um, people have talked about um, more sectoral bargaining where, um, government and labor and business come together to set minimum standards across the whole industry, um, you know, as is done in, in parts of Europe. Um, so it's a time to have, you know, there are some examples in the U.S. of the wage boards in New York State. Um, they do, they are able to set, um, you know, wage rates higher in certain industries than the state minimum wage uh, through a process that involves uh, business um, industry and, and the state. So there, so th this is a really important time to. Uh, experiment with some of these new models uh, of organizing because um, we're going to certainly need them. And and workers are restive. You know, they're interested in, you know, the number of people that support unions has uh, gone up to the highest it's been in, in many years. It's back to about 60%. Um, workers are angry about their wages stagnating. There's a lot of energy to tap into. Um, uh, so it's really kind of a time, really important time for more experimentation when it comes to organizing. That was Andy Stetner of the Century Foundation. We will put links to his work and more information on this case at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Arg. I wish I'd written that. And the piece that I chose this week is titled, They Thought They Were Going to Rehab, They Ended Up in Chicken Plants by Amy Julia Harris and Shoshana Walter at Reveal. And we talk a lot these days about prison reform and alternatives to prison, and it is an important discussion to have. But one of the things we should be discussing in that discussion is the fact that many alternatives to prison are just as bad, or as this story shows, possibly worse. The story is a warning, and of course, you see where I'm going here. It is a labor story. It begins with a man named Brad McGahey, whose saga involving the purchase of a stolen horse trailer landed him sentenced to a year at Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery, which is supposed to be, as its title suggests, a place where you get treatment and help. 
but most of its clients, Harris and Walter Wright, were sent there by courts from across Oklahoma and its neighboring states as part of a push to keep nonviolent offenders out of prison. Of course, what actually happened when they got to the, fa- the facility is a little different. They write, quote, aside from daily cans of Dr. Pepper, McGahey wasn't addicted to anything. The judge knew that, but the chicken farm sounded better than prison. A few weeks later, McGahey stood in front of a speeding conveyor belt inside a frigid poultry plant, pulling guts and stray feathers from slaughtered chickens destined for major fast food restaurants and grocery stores. There wasn't much substance abuse treatment at CARE. It was mostly factory work for one of America's top poultry companies. If Pengahe got hurt or worked too slowly, his bosses threatened him with prison. And he worked for free. CARE pocketed the pay. It was a slave camp, McGahey said. I can't believe the court sent me there. So CARE is not the only one of these rehab facilities that the reporters found are more like lucrative work camps for private industry. Prisoners or, well not quite prisoners, I guess, work at a Coca-Cola bottling plant in Oklahoma, construction firm in Alabama, nursing home in North Carolina. This particular one, CARE, was started in 2007 by chicken company executives looking for workers. They could form a Christian rehab and supply plants with a cheap and captive labor force while helping men overcome their addictions. And they could supply companies like Walmart, KFC, and PetSmart with cheap chicken. Chicken plants, as we have discussed on this show before, are dangerous places to work at the best of times. And when workers got hurt at CARE's plant, their reward was to have to finish their sentence in prison. Harris and Walter note, quote, legal experts said forcing defendants to work for free might violate their constitutional rights. The 13th Amendment bans slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States except as punishment for convicts. That's why prison labor programs are legal. But many defendants sent to programs such as CARE have not yet been convicted of crimes, and some later have their cases dismissed. This is, of course, pre-trial diversion. Therapy, as noted, is not common at CARE. Bible study is required, however. And when clients like McGahey check in, they have to sign a form saying that they are clients, not employees, and have no right to workers' comp. Yet CARE filed workers' comp claims for its workers, and Harrison Walter write, they kept the money. After McGahey was injured at the plant, he was taken to prison for failing to complete his rehab. He never got proper treatment for his crushed hand and eventually sued for workers' comp. Three years later, got some help, but not enough. Now he is reliant on pain pills, pain pills that he did not take before he was sent to rehab. My ARG pick is called The AFD's Breakthrough Shows That Parties of the Left Must Get Radical by Paul Mason in The Guardian. If you were watching the Labor Party conference in Britain last week with a mixture of envy and anxiety, you are not alone. In Paul Mason's analysis of the current political landscape in the UK and beyond, there were many promising signs that Labor was on the cusp of a renaissance. The gathering bursted with youthful energy, with crowds that roared collectively in the phenomenon known as Corbyn mania. And you might relish in schadenfreude at the dismal mood surrounding the Tory party conference a few days later, as Prime Minister Theresa May sputtered her way through yet another monotonic, cliché-ridden speech about the glories of the free market. But Mason seems a paradigm shift that few could have predicted in the wake of the Great Recession. At the same time, the fact that a party so uninspired as the Conservatives still controls Parliament is a sign of how much work needs to be done. Mason looks to the recent gains of the far right across Europe, especially the German elections with the entrance of Alternative for Germany into Parliament. This, Mason argues, means a mandate for the left to dare to go to extremes themselves. You see, it's not so much ideology that makes people turn away from mainstream parties, but just sheer social frustration. And if the right can co-opt that amorphous frustration into an agenda that serves their expansion goals, then the left must respond with equal force by pulling in the other direction rather than veering right. Mason writes, quote, Until the center-left learns to break with the logic of neoliberalism and to construct an economic model that subordinates market forces to human needs, it will continue failing. The task is not to remedy or tweak the neoliberal economic model, but to replace it just as fundamentally as Thatcher, Reagan, and Berlusconi did in the economic counter-revolutions of the 80s and 90s. Remember, they were seen as radical ones, too. This may all sound familiar to you, since this is what many on the left in the U.S. were warning about last year in the lead-up to the election that brought Trump to power, to the utter shock and awe of the Democrats. But it shouldn't be seen as merely a call to arms for radicals. 
It's a May Day warning to liberals everywhere, even those at the center, that they are dealing with an existential crisis because they cannot rest themselves from the safety blanket of middle-class centrism. Labor is just starting to recognize what the populist left in the U.S. has been trying to wake progressives up to for a long time now. Sanders supporters who are dismissed as childishly unrealistic last summer are increasingly being seen as the party's only hope. Just look at the debate over single-payer health care, i.e. socialized medicine. But recognizing that more radicalism is necessary doesn't translate as easily in the U.S. context to concrete shifts in political power, not in government at least, in part because of our inaccessible and money-laden electoral process. Still, Mason says that across the U.K., Europe, and even North America, we can break the monopoly on power that the parties of the rich hold over the public interest. But we must do this by shifting the center. As Corbyn himself argued, the so-called center is a cultural and ideological construct. Once power shifts more to the masses, so does the definition of the center, so does who gets to define the agenda. Beyond the spectacle of any political persona, even Sanders and Corbyn, the main line left of center in the U.S. and the U.K. should cede the stage to people who can speak with conviction, unless they want to be trampled over by the likes of Trump. They have virtually no good ideas, but they certainly have a lot of conviction that they're right. Mason identifies the EU's Lisbon Treaty as the straitjacket that has made neoliberalism the default mode for a generation. The same could be said of free market economics, Reaganism, and Wall Street's domination of two-party politics here in the U.S. But if we can't think of an alternative to these models, if we can't think of an alternative to Thatcher and Blairism and Clintonian liberalism this many years on, then that should be a sign and a source of shame that we're stuck in an ideological straitjacket of our own making. That's not a sign that somehow centrism has somehow worn some sort of so-called war of ideas. So rather than reach out to court the AFD vote, Mason advises Germany's social democratic core to pull sharply in the opposite direction before it's too late. Otherwise, you're simply ceding more and more of the center to the reactionary right. People on the ground must, in his view, imagine a future in which the state defends the people and the planet, not the financial elite, unquote. There is indeed an alternative, two alternatives, in fact, and they are crucial. One is to condemn a generation to nihilism of the worst sort, which is the proposition of the fascist right. The other alternative is to be brazenly optimistic about the potential of democracy, and that means overcoming some well-deserved cynicism over what elections really mean these days. The bottom line is, if you're not a radical at heart and you're in power, then you don't have the heart to dissuade anyone else from becoming a radical. And if you can't imagine a future in which people like you aren't in power anymore, then that's a sign for you to step down and please, for your sake and ours, get the heck out of the way. And that's all for this episode. Tune in in another two weeks. And in the meantime, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Please send us any ideas, questions you have about organizing, what you're doing for the people of Puerto Rico, what your union is doing for the people of Puerto Rico, and any ideas you have about economic renewal for the island or for economic renewal anywhere else. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.